Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. From director Judd Ehrlich comes his latest documentary film called The Price of Freedom. It's an unflinching look at the gun violence epidemic in America, as well as the role, the very important role, that the National Rifle Association has had in that epidemic of violence. The film is well-balanced. It gives all sides an opportunity to be heard in talking about not only guns and the relationship that Americans have to guns, but as well as the origin story for the National Rifle Association as an organization designed to help people with gun safety, training, marksmanship contests, and such, and uh, essentially was a kind of 4-H club at the beginning of its uh, history, and over time has turned into probably the most powerful entity in national politics. We're fortunate to have with us today the director of the film, The Price of Freedom, and that would be director Judd Ehrlich. Judd, welcome to Film School Radio. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So uh, tell me a little bit about what inspired you to embark on this project to sort of document the history and the political, cultural issues surrounding uh, guns and the NRA. Sure. So it really began with this question of how did we get here? How did we get to a point in this country, in America, where gun violence is astronomical, where gun ownership is so prevalent, and where we have no gun laws in this country to really speak of on a national level? How did that happen? How did we get here? And when looking into it, Time and again, roads led back to the National Rifle Association. It was the National Rifle Association that really changed the debate in this country. And part of the most upsetting thing, I think, is that it didn't have to be this way because the National Rifle Association was not always the National Rifle Association that we know today, which is really a radical political organization that has a, a, a radical interpretation of the Second Amendment and is most concerned with lobbying and most concerned with making sure that any gun regulation, no matter how benign, is not passed in this country. But for a century, the National Rifle Association was most concerned with marksmanship, with gun safety, with the shooting sports, with hunting and conservation. And these are really positive things about gun culture. And they made a change, you know, that happened, really began in the culture wars of the 1960s. And they really did an about face with a hostile takeover of the organization and what's known as the Cincinnati Revolt of 1977. Yeah, and we'll get into that because there, there are some very interesting characters who are were a part of that. And I very much agree with you about sort of the, the turn in the NRA. I'm old enough to remember it as just as you described, kind of you would go there to get training. You would They would set up events for, for shooting for marksmanship and those kind of things. Very much more of a grassroots community, rural kind of an organization. And, um, and again, the culture wars, I want to get into that. Uh, but just to bolster something you said earlier, 
in the United States, you're 25 times more likely to be shot than in any other industrial culture in, in the world, 25 more times. Let's talk about that part of uh, the NRA's history where it took this kind of, it took on a lot of the um, political perspective of the most conservative, I'll say Republican, even though during that period of time, there was a lot of variance, a lot of fluctuation. You couldn't say it as much as you can today, but to put it in that context. And let's talk a little bit about Harlan Carter and his influence. Harlan Carter is somebody that I didn't know a lot about before making this film. And I don't think a lot of people know when when they think of the NRA leadership, their their mind will go to Wayne LaPierre and, and rightly so. He took over as executive vice president in 1991 and he's been the face of the NRA for a very long time. But Harlan Carter hired Wayne LaPierre and Wayne LaPierre watched Harlan Carter for years. And Harlan Carter was somebody who, unlike Wayne LaPierre, really was a gun guy um, and really was somebody who uh, he grew up on the Texas border. He was a border uh, patrol chief at the time when uh, there were really draconian measures that he, he put in place in that position. Uh, when we talk about it in the film, he murdered a 15-year-old uh, named Ramon Cassiano, which he then proceeded to cover up. And this is this is the man that that founded the NRA that we know today. He began his involvement in the 1960s uh, during the height of the culture wars, which you know we we look back today and. Are, are, are so much with us when we look at, at all of the issues in this country, the, those issues that were the culture war issues in the 1960s and were, were very much manipulated uh, by politicians for political gain uh, are still with us and still being used in similar ways. And I think Harlan Carter on some level understood that and he understood how powerful for certain segments of the American population, certain issues could be. He understood that tying gun ownership to those issues could also be very powerful. And in a way that's part of the the genius and effectiveness of the NRA over the years is that they've been able to really play to those sort of American ideas uh, of what our history might have been and where this country should go and how firearms are connected to individualism and freedom and what it means to be American. And so then owning a firearm becomes much more than something that you would use for target practice, something that you would use to go hunting or even something that you would use uh, to protect your home and your family. It becomes a symbol. Harlan was sort of the first to really understand that and really weaponize that idea, and then to uh, really align himself politically, uh, beginning in uh, with the election of, of Ronald Reagan on a national level. And we just saw that grow and grow over time to where we have, um, in the election of 2016, the NRA going all in with, uh, you know, over $70 million investment in the candidacy of um, Donald Trump. 
I'll probably talk in ways that you wouldn't want to. <laughs> and that is Harlan Carter was very much, he was to guns what Lester Maddox was to baseball bats. And in other words, he made gun ownership and guns not only just what you described, but also something that you that defined you as a person. But let's be clear, it's hard to extricate that particular per sort of perspective and philosophy of the NRA from race. This I, I don't know the statistics on the NRA, but I am guessing that it is overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly male. And that's the part where I think we just and the, the cultural certainly talked about culture war. That's really civil rights and the the war and the protests, the war in Vietnam and rights for civil rights for other people. It, 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 that's all that. I mean, to me, I'm just describing my perspective on this. So when I'm watching this, it's painful to watch because this was a fork in the road for America, the '60s and the and that era and that and and how things would have been so much different if we didn't have sort of identity politics that he he and others injected into this. So, yeah, I, absolutely. And, and you know, I mean, as we know, uh, to you can't separate race from any issue in this country and certainly right. not firearms. I mean, who was it who had the right to own firearms in this country from its founding? Just like so many other rights, it was white men. Those were the people who had the right to, to own firearms. So there were gun control laws that we talk about in the film that had to do with race and those that didn't. But there were certainly gun control laws in this country and some of the earliest ones that were about disarming, making sure that African slaves could not have guns, nor would they ever if they were freed in this country. And Native Americans could not own guns. That was very important. And that is a strain of this country uh, that people are beginning to acknowledge. It's no accident that the frontier myth yes, uh, that you. the NRA embraces is about the white good guy with a gun who's right. able to ride in and save the day. It's no accident that the NRA decided to support Bernie Getz in New York, who shot for Black kids who had screwdrivers on a subway in cold blood, uh, paralyzing one of them, could have easily killed them all. And we forget that Bernard Goetz was carrying that gun illegally. Yet this is somebody that the NRA chose to get behind. Right. On the other hand, they did not get behind. Uh, they were silent when somebody like Philando Castile, who was African-American, who had a license to carry a firearm and indicated to a police officer that he had that license to carry, was gunned down and killed by that officer. You would think that this would be a poster child for the NRA because here you have somebody who had a license to carry a firearm, informed an officer that he did, and yet is shot and killed by that officer. Yeah. But no, because race, is that dividing line. And you're right, overwhelmingly, it's white men who are members of the National Rifle Association. And time and again, the NRA will use those issues to drum up excitement among their most hardcore supporters. And we talk about it in the film as well, in terms of crime, which is 
often thinly veiled way to talk about race and fear. And so the NRA has really been expert at playing on certain Americans' fear of other Americans. And that was the case with, uh, from the very beginning of, of Harlan Carter's tenure at the NRA, and it only grew over the decades. I want to remind our listeners, we're speaking with Judd Ehrlich. He is the director of this uh, terrific documentary film called The Price of Freedom. And uh, just to put a fine point on that, because th- I, this is something I fairly recently found out. First of all, the Second Amendment, there's a whole bunch of history in uh, scholarship to support the idea that it came into the Constitution not long after the slave rebellion in Haiti occurred. It was around that time period that the slaves basically overthrew the French colonists in Haiti, a few hundred miles off the coast of America. There's also uh, the origin story for the sheriffs, which was a slave patrol. Basically, the militia of that time were trying to round up slaves who were trying to escape. And then the mythology of the West, that whole thing. I mean, how many apparently millions of people died in our sweep across the West and Native Americans and just there's so much here that isn't true about this mythology. Now, I'm not saying that all of it's a lie. There are certain things that are we we come to know that are are historically accurate, but it's the stuff we don't know that is so it's so much uh, that is so important for people to understand in the context not only of guns but also just in this sort of ideology mythology of America and our manifest destiny and and all those things that came along with it. I just, by the way, and also one last thing here, the the, the NRA has been in favor of gun control. Let's talk about the uh, Mulford Act here in in California. Uh, That's an important part of this story as well. And of course, goes back to race um, because yes, uh, the Mulford Act, um, you know, then Governor Ronald Reagan of California supported, pushed through this act, which was about disarming the Black Panthers at the time. And so, um, so the irony that uh, somebody who is speaking about everybody's right to own a firearm when running for president and the importance of law and order was the one who was on the forefront of passing gun control uh, in in the late 1960s. And the other piece of that story is that behind the scenes, the NRA was also involved in making sure that that legislation got passed. So again, it's it's a very clear example, which you see time and again, of how this is not about everybody's right to own a firearm. It's about certain people's right to own a firearm. And that that comes through quite a lot in, in the National Rifle Association's history. Yeah. And despite all of my ranting here and, and my and, and my discussing this in the context of race in America, the film itself, The Price of Freedom, is very even-handed in the presentation. We hear a lot of voices in the film. David Keene, who's a, one of the most important leaders of the NRA of the last half century, uh, is in the film and certainly given his due and, and understanding just what a priority this is and why. And while I may be vehemently uh, opposed to how he feels about these things, it, in this film, you you get um, 
you get certainly you get the opportunity to hear those points of view. It'd be hard to discuss the NRA in today's context without basically the last three or four years with Parkland. I thought at the, the time uh, when the Parkland shooting occurred and I began to see some of the uh, activism and uh, organizing going on there, it felt different. And it may, it may play out that it won't eventually be as I'm projecting now, but it certainly seemed to be a pivotal moment in America in terms of its perception of, of guns and perception of the NRA. And we see today a very much diminished NRA in terms, putting aside the legal issues, we, it seems like politically they seem to be a diminished organization. If that's unfair, let me know. Yeah, I mean, I look, I, I think w- I wanted to leave the film on, a, on different notes. And on a uh, one note is that Uh, the gun reform, gun safety movement did have tremendous gains in the 2018 midterms following Parkland. You're able to see in the film we show earlier how states flipped to have incredibly lax gun laws, including permitless carry or what the NRA calls constitutional carry. And to be able to see those flip back, uh, even in Republican-led states with Republican governors, where people are maybe finally able to wake up and say, this isn't partisan. This is just about what kind of country do we want for our kids? So wanted to acknowledge uh, that that the movement began to coalesce that that these groups that were somewhat splintered after sandy hook began to began to come together that any type of gun violence was seen as gun violence and that people started to use the nra playbook on the other side and say see the effectiveness of making guns a number one issue for the gun rights folks. And we're gonna do that if we care about gun reform and we're going to get candidates in who care about that. That being said, David Keene has some of the most frightening lines to me in the film near the end where he says, there've been many times in our history, and this is true. There've been many times in the NRA's history where people have counted us out, where people have thought, they're, they're finished and they've been scandal ridden. There've been all of these types of things that are going on. Those kinds of things have happened in the past. The NRA has survived. But perhaps the more important thing for, that I want people to focus on is what he says next, which is he says, it doesn't matter if you're a member of the NRA or just an American who cares about the second amendment. When that bell is rung, When we ring that bell and say that your rights are under attack, we will rise up. And what that says to me is that even if the NRA went away tomorrow, those Americans are not going anywhere. And so, yes, the NRA is important, has been important, but they've been so successful that they've been able to really have these myths permeate American society in such a way that you don't have to be an NRA member to get out there and to not want any type of of gun control or gun reform whatsoever and believe in these myths of the slippery slope and believe that talking about the most benign gun safety measure means that you're coming to confiscate all firearms in this country. That's just not true. 
But that myth has been very effective and has gotten into all areas of American society and is going to be very difficult to root out. But it's something that was important, I think, because I think it goes to the root of why this is such an American issue, such an American problem, and how a lot of us have to reframe our understanding if we want things to change. Yeah. In the last second or so I have with you, it's astonishing that they've been able to maintain this level of power, given that the vast majority of Americans believe in in forms of gun control, including ban of assault weapons and background checks. Astonishing percentage of Americans agree on this, gun owners and non-gun owners. So it, it's it, this says something about our political system, where something that is overwhelmingly popular with the people can get little to no traction in our governance. That is more about our, it's a critique of our system. And, and it's also knowing how, what levers to pull. And also, it's also to me, a fear of real violence. One of the things that I keep coming back to, and that is, I do fear for an America in the future, in the not too distant future, where violence gun violence on a organized level will be a fact of American life. And I'm, and I know that sounds pretty dire, but I, I fear for it. I fear it's, it's possible. Well, gu gun violence has unfortunately already yeah. reached an unacceptable and epidemic proportions. I mean, right. we're there. But um, it's, so, not, it's not as organized as I fear it can be. I think yeah. not that I think January 6th is an indic. I thought that was a dry run. I think there's there's a lot of dry runs going on around the country right now with these people, Michigan, Wisconsin, a lot of places where it feels like these are training exercises as much as they are protest for a political purpose. Yeah, well, I'll I'll just leave it on. You know, I Sorry. think here Robert Robert Spitzer says in the film, there's an old axiom in politics that a small but motivated minority can rule the day over a large but apathetic majority. And I think if you're going to take away anything from this film, if you want to end gun violence in this country, or at least mitigate it, if you want more gun safety, gun reform in this country, you got to get out there and yeah, make your voice heard. It doesn't matter if you answer on, a, an, on an opinion poll that you're for background checks, if you don't get out there and do something about it. And folks on the other side are doing something about it. Folks on the other side are out in the streets um, and very often carrying uh, firearms in the streets. Yeah. So there has to be an answer on the other side. I agree with you. I agree. And thank you so much. I, I go way over my time here. The film is called The Price of Freedom. You can go to thepriceoffreedommovie.com. There's also a, a, a link there to find out where it's playing, how to watch it, how to organize a, a, your own viewing party, all kinds of different things. Check this out. It's a terrific film, The Price of Freedom. Director Judd Ehrlich. Judd, Judd thank you so much for being here on Film School Radio. I really enjoyed it. And I'll just say it's also going to be in theaters nationwide on July 7th. So thank you, Mike. Thank you. And that'll be at uh, the price of freedom uh, movie.com to find out more about that as well as uh, film school radio. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much. You. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Music